Hey, this is Kim Delarosa, and you're listening to Deep Magic, a podcast about mental health, wellness, and creativity. This is episode three, and this is exciting because I am not alone in this episode. So today, we're actually going to be talking about an issue that a lot of people are facing silently, and it's what happens when your physical body, like, feels like it's going against you or it feels like it's failing on you you know what do you do and when you're battling an illness that you don't know really much about and how to move forward despite whatever is going on with your life despite all these odds and yeah today's guest is such a perfect example of how to do this I am so so excited so I'm actually joined by a poet writer activist Lucy Torres Lucy hi hi (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much for joining this is awesome I'm like super excited just to get into this with you this is so great thank you for having me I feel honored and very humbled so thank you (laughs) yeah okay um so I'm just gonna read your bio because your bio is impressive just in case nobody knows who you are so um yeah so Lucy's a writer poet activist based in New York City Lucy's also the author of The Taste of Broken, which is an autobiographical poetry book that explores internal chaos of coping with illness, loss, and the road to recovery. Lucy received the LaGuardia Performing Arts Center LAB 101 recipient grant in 2014, and she's performed her poems and art shows since 2015 in events like Queen's Women's Artists, We Heart NYC Writers, Queen's Literary Festival, and it's a, she's just continuously creating amazing content about just being in female body and what everybody goes through it's something that's just so so relatable her work so I'm really 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 excited to just talk about this with you so yeah once again thanks Lucy for coming on (laughs) thank you how do you feel with all of that with your bio just being read to you are you just kind of like you know honestly (laughs) Um, so I hear that and I'm like, wow, there's some stuff that I've done and I'm still working on now. And I want to add more to that bio, but ah, so see. it's almost like in, it's almost inspiring then when you hear it back. Yeah. To I'm like, I like, need to do oh, more. What I'm else am do I more. doing? I need yeah. To do more. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And it's crazy. Cause as an artist, I feel that way too. Cause sometimes I'll look at my bio and I'm just like, Oh God, is that it? Right, <laughs> like that's it. Yeah. You know, I've been on this planet for like almost four decades and that's all I have to speak say for myself like please you know <laughs> what am I doing with my life <laughs> so yeah so this is gonna be awesome because um yeah and well for deep magic it's just basically about going deep with ourselves with our work and our life purpose so yeah I just want to get started um first things first I would love for you to talk a little bit about your background like where you were born and where you're from because yeah I know you and I actually grew up in the same area but I just love to hear different people's perspectives of like how they grew up because there's just like a story in everybody so yeah absolutely so yes so I'm from Queens New York love to represent our hood hell yeah (laughs) and and how diversified queens can be i was originally i lit i was born in jackson heights queens and i came to um where i live where my parents uh, raised me um to richmond hill actually um when i was seven and 
I grew up in that neighborhood and, and saw a lot of the demographics change throughout the years, right? So um, it's really interesting because growing up, before moving to Richmond Hill, I never realized that we were not, we didn't have money, right? I never had a sense of poverty um, or that we were ever tight because I didn't have that concept as a child and my parents never made me feel that. And it wasn't until my, you know, my parents had worked their way up. They were like the classic American dream, right? First generation um, that they just came here and I'm first generation. So it's really interesting because by the time I was able to be aware of my surroundings, we were already pretty much middle class. So I definitely have middle class privilege. I grew up in a household, a house, a home, um, and I never felt that I was lacking anything. I certainly didn't feel like we were rolling in money, but I never understood that concept of poverty as my parents knew it, right? And what I must have experienced as a child, which I wasn't cognizant, right? I wasn't aware of that. Um, you know, and so I grew up like a, a very solidly Queens-based middle class, um, first generation Hispanic a girl trying to navigate the world in a way that um, in the 90s, there was such a high pregnancy rate here in New York City for a lot of um, minority women. Oh, um, yeah. And minority mm-hmm. teenagers. I definitely remember that. Yeah, that yeah. was like a thing. I mean, and, and then that's not to say that it's not that's not happening now. I just I can only speak to my experience as a teenager. But that was something that was so huge. And um, <laughs> my I knew that it wasn't going to fly in my household, uh, at least not with my dad, who was very, very strict. Um, that wasn't, that was, I could, I could never come home and, and say that, that I was pregnant, right? So for me, that was like a big deal. And as a nerd and as somebody who's like very all about, you know, reading and, and focusing on my career, because I've always been very career and um, career oriented, that was never an option for me. That was never a thing. So I just buried my head in the books and wanted to focus on my career after high school and college. So my experience is different than others in in my group. I mean, as artists, right, and ragtag team of friends that I have, we're all very varied. But all of our experience is so different because Queens in itself is such a is such a multi it's nuanced, but it's like such multicultured area that even within our own communities we're all different right like I'm Chilean um Mm -hmm. I didn't have any Chilean people except for my family um I didn't grow up with any Chileans around so my sense of self is very different than somebody who is Colombian or Ecuadorian um so even in that it's just that's the wonderful thing about New York and the wonderful thing about Queens which is you know we're the most multicultural um, borough or area in the world and that's for sure because on my block everybody's from a different country and that's amazing um, and we all speak different languages so I think you know when you grow up and it's not necessarily the hood right I call it the hood because it is the hood yeah it's not technically the hood, right? yeah I know that's what's crazy it's like it's yeah, because we grew up not literally. We were like two bus rides away from each other. Yeah, and super close. Yeah, we were super close. So I understand that around where we are, it's it's it is dangerous. It's literally, I guess, dubbed the hood. But we know that things could get far worse. Yeah, and it's like not the hood at the same time because yeah, I'm not scared to walk down the street, but it could just very well be because I grew up here. So I'm like, I know how to defend myself, mm-hmm. and, and then a, a part of me is like you're really going to mess with me? Like, seriously, you know, I think, <laughs> I think as short and as like, 
you know, nice and outgoing as I am, I think we all have that little, the little part of ourselves that's the New York in you that's like, mm-mm. Not today, not today. Yeah, yeah. I always <laughs> even said it too. Like it's city kids. We have like just a different layer of skin. Yes, you know absolutely. because it's it's just that adaptability when you're from the city. Because it's yeah, it's almost like it's another. The city is like another parent that yes. raises you in a way. Absolutely, because you have a sense, right? Like you walk down the street, your all of your senses are heightened. Like I go anywhere else. And wherever else I go, I'm like, how is everybody so chill? Like, I, we're walking at night. Like, you, I could be chill, but I'm not chill. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, there's, there's, there are different tiers to that. You're always on um, and you're always alert. And I think, I mean, I'm thankful for that because I, you know, having traveled abroad and traveling to different places, you pick up on, on body language. You pick up on a lot of different behaviors that many others don't because it's part of you, of your upbringing. You're always hyper aware of what's going on even a a slight change of tone or the way somebody looks at you can just be very telling because riding the subways you already know the kind of crazy that comes with riding the subway in itself is already a lesson in um in new york city politics yeah definitely (laughs) so then um in what way did just our neighborhood and the environment what way did it influence you just not only as an individual but just as an as an overall artist I think so having grown up in the 90s in a certainly totally different time than now um before the internet was a thing right like I distinctly remember when the internet became a thing I know I remember the before and the the during and the after right um you know, for me, my life was very sheltered um, because my my dad, my parents were strict, but I would say my dad predominantly. My mom was much more progressive and very outgoing and very lax in, because she, you know, she trusted us. And not to say that my dad, eh, he didn't trust me, but I think it was because he grew up, you know, just he saw New York City when it was grimy, right? He came here in the, in the 60s and he, he learned as he went along and he saw a lot of crazy things and he, his life was at risk growing up. So here in the city, right? So by the time I come around, New York city is not as grimy, but he's scared. Right. So I understand why he's very distrustful. Um, But because of that, I wasn't allowed to do a lot of things that most kids were able to do. Right. And I was very sheltered. So I created my own world and I, you know, I wasn't into pop culture things. I mean, I just watched the Goonies for the first time, like two years ago. Oh um, my God. My best friend was like, I cannot believe we've been friends for like 25 years. And you, you like, I'm like, I can't, I can't be your friend anymore. If you can't watch it, if you don't watch it. And I was like, all right, well, I've heard of it, but it was never a thing. So like, for me, I was pretty much living in my own world. So I was very influenced by the neighborhood, certainly. Um, at the time, it was still in flux you know there were a lot of different cultures now the neighborhood is predominantly west indian pakistani bangladeshi um there is a hispanic influence as well um but at the time it was different right so you know i grew up just sitting on my porch steps watching the world go by and i created my own world and that was my escape uh, because i was bullied as a child very very intensely um from my size And I wasn't even that big. If I look back, like I look back in pictures and I wasn't even big. I was just, I was different, right? Like I've always been different. Um, And that helped shape my writing and 
and also who I am as a person um, now because I I've always been different and I've never caved to societal pressures to having to be anything that's expected of me and so I lead all, all I would say all of my art leads with that this sense of like coming from a place where you feel vulnerable and alone and lonely and my work speaks to that because I know that all of us in one one way or another might have an experience in our lives where we feel we're alone and so my art is based on that concept of isolation and and making others feel like they're not alone um and and I will say my parents were really great in allowing me to read whatever I wanted to um and so I was exposed to a lot of interesting literature a lot of a lot of things that I guess somebody at eight or nine wouldn't be regularly reading you know um and and that, that shapes who I am now because I've always been very progressive, but I I feel like the that upbringing, even though it was very sheltered, the fact that I could still create my own world and 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 draw and paint and jump and skip and do whatever the hell I wanted within my realm, um, allowed me to have a sense of freedom within that lack of freedom. If that makes any sense. No, that I think makes perfect sense, and I think that's one of the the beauties about art and the artist's life is we are able to create a world that's entirely different from our current reality and it's also something it's also a way that helps us cope I think just writing and art in general is another source of just making sure that we take care of ourselves I just internally even though we kind of don't think that we're doing it it's almost like un- unconsciously and unintentionally when we're creating art it's like our literal source of therapy absolutely for all absolutely. the things that we're doing and I think that's just fantastic so and also I what I love about you is that you went through a huge ordeal when it came to your your physical body so I wanted to see if we could talk a little bit about that because you've like a lot of your work like just talks about just an unknown illness you experienced um endometriosis so I just wanted to just say like at what age did you feel like your body was kind of out of alignment or beginning to feel outside of yourself and at when did you kind of tell yourself okay I need to have this looked at uh, so essentially, so endometriosis, essentially what it is, is the lining of uh, your uterus um, is either thicker than normal or it grows outside of your uterus, which is a complete, I mean, it's it's horrific, right? It'll grow on other organs and you're essentially hemorrhaging internally during your period and there's no escape. So you have, an, uh, uh, you have you're hemorrhaging consistently during your cycle, which is very dangerous, Right. In my teen years, I I felt like something was wrong with me whenever I had my period. Um, or, you know, cyclically, I always felt like something was wrong. But, you know, it, this all goes back like this, this, this is why my feminism is so centered around reproductive health. You know, we're not taught, we're taught, let me rephrase that. So we're taught to just take it because it's our lot in life. Right. And so mm. I'm first generation. And, and so my mom, who is the most amazing woman to ever exist on this in this universe, um, <laughs> so kind and so good. But she obviously, you know, she also had her cycle and she comes from a line of women who had very heavy cycles. So 
you know, when I told her, I was like, I don't feel right. She, uh, you know, assumed that it was because, you know, it's just a bad period, right? It's a bad period. And so during my teen years, I, I felt something was wrong and I couldn't quite pinpoint it, right? You know, it was, I, I, I now know I was hemorrhaging. And as we well know, that's a very dangerous thing because you're low in iron, you know, you, the, the sense of fatigue that came with it. There was um, intense bloating. There was um, nausea. There, was, there were like early triggers and early signs, but it was still functional, right? I was still functional in mm-hmm. school. Um, and it wasn't until I was in my 20s, I would say in my early 20s, there were things that my body, my body started changing in weird ways. Um, but I started noticing that there were changes in my body. And I was like, this, this doesn't feel right. And I don't know how to express it. I don't know what this is. And so like, a lot of it was like, my hair started falling out in clumps. And I've always had, you know, growing up, I had very, um, I've always had very wild hair. Um, and in my teenage years, it was really curly. But in my early 20s, it started shifting. And I started losing a lot, a lot, a lot of my hair. So, you know, when I went to the doctor, my gynecologist was like, well, you need to lose weight. That's what's happening. You have PCOS, which is polycystic ovary syndrome. Um, essentially, mm-hmm. I have multiple at during periods of time. I have a lot of cysts in my ovaries, which causes can cause a lot of pain, but also causes like imbalances with your hormones, with your sugar levels, with your insulin. Um, and by default can cause all these different issues. Right. So, yeah, on, on birth control and. The three birth controls I tried, they were all horrific. One, I gained like 50 pounds. Oh, jeez, Louise. Yes. The second one, for a whole month, everything tasted like coins, like nickel, like like metallic. There was no taste to anything. And then the third one, I lost, I don't want to say I lost all of my hair, but I lost a good portion of my hair. And all of this was in a matter of like, let's say six months. So in six months, my whole, my body went through crazy shifts. And none of, and, and the doctor didn't listen to me when I told her, listen, this doesn't feel right. Something doesn't feel right. And they're like, you know, you need to lose weight. And I'm like, you tell me that, but I'm gaining weight because of something. You telling me to lose weight is, is ridiculous because the weight is coming. Is, I'm gaining the weight because of something. So you're prescribing yeah. something that's actually the problem. Um, and I wasn't listened to. And I, my journey started about six years before I was diagnosed and it was six years of me going back and forth and in the in the interim um PCOS then I was told I had a thyroid a thyroid issue which I actually didn't um you know I was told that um that I needed to 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 lose drastic uh, like drastic weight loss right I have drastic weight loss and um but I was like all right but okay but I'm exercising I'm doing everything right so you tell me what I'm supposed to be doing because I play soccer. I do this. I go to the gym. You know, I'm doing a million different things. What else am I supposed to do? And they're like, well, you just need to lose weight. Well, I mean, okay, but what is your game plan? If I'm doing everything right, you want me to journal. I even joined Weight Watchers. I did. I mean, I've been in and out of Weight Watchers since I was 13. So I I was fully conscientious of what, like fully aware of all the things that I had to do that were supposed to be right. And my body still wasn't working right. And so this is where, like, I came to a point where I started getting really frustrated. And I'd always hated my body. I'd always hated myself because I, 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 didn't, I, never, I didn't grow up loving myself. I didn't grow up feeling like I belonged in, in the body that I had. I didn't feel right about myself because I'd been bullied my whole life. And 
And I never had a sense of self. I was very assertive in my art where I was very assertive in my feminism. I was very assertive in a lot of things when it came to my personality. And that was never going to bend because I'm in that, in that I'm unflappable, right? I'm very, I'm very um, staunch when I believe in something. So that's not, mm-hmm. that was never going to change. But I was always so self-conscious about the way I looked because I wasn't beautiful because I was too short. I was too awkward. I had big buck teeth, which I got, cor- <laughs> I had corrected when I was 12, you know, 13. I, you know, got the braces. I got the everything. But, you know, I had buck teeth. I was very hairy. I had a Frida uh, eyebrow thing going on until I started plucking them. You know, like little things like that growing up, you know, make a big difference. Um, yeah. And so I had to face my self-hatred head on in amidst all these doctors saying well you are obese and here I am screaming and saying this is not the problem I'm doing everything right so what happens when you're doing all the right things and your body doesn't respond I think what sucks about that whole thing was you kind of knew within yourself and within your body that there was something completely wrong and you felt like you kind of had to go it alone and I think that's what a lot of people face especially about their bodies or about illnesses that they have they kind of feel like it's like hindering them in a way it's almost like it's it's not helping them excel and it's not helping them to kind of move forward or try to do whatever they want to do because if their body's going against them then they're just kind of like god damn it what the what the hell do I do now so yes it was you know it was very isolating and it was very solitary because at the time I, I was with um, my boyfriend, um, we had been together since we were like 15, 14, 15. And so he was very understanding and he was very supportive. Um, and so, you know, he, he would take me to the doctors. He would walk me through a lot of the stuff, my parents too, but none of the doctors were listening to me. And so here I'm submerging myself more and more into this thought of I'm defective. My body's not working. I'm doing everything right. I'm doing everything that needs to be done. Something's wrong with me. Nobody's listening to me. And it's very, it puts you in a headspace that, you know, it's hard to describe. It makes you feel like you are the only person in the world dealing with this, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so for me, I've always been a very positive person despite all the things that I've been through. And I know that that comes, that's something internal, right? Like, some people are naturally pessimistic. Some people are naturally fatalistic. Some people are naturally chip, chipper all the time. I'm naturally a positive person because I, that's just who I am. But that doesn't mean that I don't have my moments, right? So that, you know, when I was going through all of that, I never cried once in front of anybody because, because I'm also very proud. <laughs> and I was like, well, listen, I'm, you know, I'm going to get this and I'm going to get to the root of this because I'm a problem solver. So if something's wrong, I have to get to the core of it and figure out why. So this time, you know, there was a time that they told me that maybe I had cancer. Maybe it was something, you know, thyroid based. And, you know, hearing things like that when you're at that time, by the time I was diagnosed, I was in 25, 26. That's a frightening prospect because you're in your 20s. Yeah. And I'm not an angry person, but you get to a point where it's like, well, it's been about five, six years. What gives? Because yeah. I'm going from place to place. I'm going with the most positive attitude you can ever muster going in and asking questions and figuring out what to do I change my diet a million times I've done everything you can think of and of course people around me were like what the hell like Lucy you are always 
even when you're sick, you're, you're always like going a mile a minute. You're always doing something. And I was like, I can't, I, my body's not responding. I, I don't know what's happening, but I can't do this. I can't go out. I can't even have a glass of water. Wow. So you're in the process where you're still like trying to come to terms or make peace with your body right now because it's just been like an ongoing journey. But so what, when is it that you kind of were just like, okay, so I just need to, I just need to make peace with it. Like, when did you kind of look at your body and was like, all right, you and I have to come to an agreement with one another? You know, I honestly and truly, it wasn't until I lost a child until my miscarriage four years ago. Mm. Um, I, so I was diagnosed at 26 with endometriosis and you can't be fully diagnosed until you have surgery, but I didn't have surgery until I was, um, until I was 32. So five, uh, no, I'm sorry, 31. And it changed my body, right? It changed the way my body looked. It changed the way my body felt. And after the surgery, I felt great again for the first time in many years. And, um, you know, I felt, I met somebody, I fell in love and, um, I, you know, I was on birth control at the time to regulate my, my endometrium. And, um, I was pulled off of it because I had a, uh, they discovered a blood clot that was dangerous. And when I was pulled off of it, I kind of went through a whirlwind of emotion. Um, and nobody talks about yet again, talks about the fact that these hormones, when they're pulled so drastically can put you in a different mind frame. Um, so I went from not wanting kids. I've never wanted kids. I still don't. They're beautiful. They're wonderful. I love them and I could take care of them for the rest of my life, but I don't want to have my own. Um, I went in, in a month from not wanting kids to wanting to have kids. Um, and I, and I, you know, I know my hormones were just all over the place. Right. And, um, and even though I had endo somehow not knowing I was pregnant, I, I was pregnant for a couple of months, but I still got my period. And, mm. and because of that, you know, it goes to show like it was never a normal pregnancy. And it certainly shows that like my endo still messes, messes everything up. Um, I didn't, I found out while I was in Chile on vacation with my partner at the time. And I was scared out of my mind. And I was like, well, I love this little peanut that's growing inside of me because it was a miracle. I never thought I was going to be able to get pregnant. Um, but then I was scared out of my mind. And shortly after that, I, I got very, very sick. And it turns out that I partially miscarried while I was in Chile. And I, I miscarried the rest of my child here in New York. Um, and then I went into a really debilitating but high-functioning postpartum depression that I didn't talk about with anybody. And it put me in a really bad state. And, I, you know, my partner and I uh, parted ways in the middle of all of that. And I was in a really bad state. So it wasn't until I'd lost everything that I realized that I'd been wasting my entire life hating myself. But it's been a very bumpy road and it's, it's rough, right? Because you can't over and overnight just start loving yourself and saying, oh, I love the fact that now I have a pregnancy belly because I'm not, because I was pregnant. You know, before I've been used to looking pregnant for so long because I've been in and out of uh, flare ups that my body had already gotten used to looking pregnant. Right. But yeah. When I finally was pregnant, it was a mind fuck. So when all of that passed, I still looked pregnant. And I was still going through all the hormonal changes that happen when you're pregnant. 
and I was suffering the loss and I thought you know if I don't learn how to love myself now I'm never gonna make it you know I'm never gonna make it and and what I mean is like not that I wasn't gonna survive um but I meant like I was never going to pass that that threshold right you know how they say sometimes something really horrible has to happen to you to open your eyes that had to happen to me and it's been four years and I can finally talk about it without crying. Um, but it's so deeply, it so deeply impacted me that every, every April and every May of every year, I go into a deep depression because I remember, it's like my body remembers everything that happened, the trauma of it. Um, this year actually was pretty great. And I was able to celebrate my birthday. I was just depressed for May. And I was like, all right, well, you know what? I will take my battles. One month is better than two months. And next year, maybe it'll be two weeks, you know? Yeah. Um, but that, that was the crux of it. If I, if I don't learn how to love myself and practice kindness with this body that has been through so much, I've been through two major, major, major surgeries that have changed my body, that have changed the way I perceive it. Um, I've been through so many ER visits. I've been through so many different variations of pain. So I've become my, my own ambassador of pain. I, I can say, I mean, thankfully now, since my last surgery, I live relatively pain-free for the most part, except during my cycles, which is always going to be a hassle. Um, and I offset that by, you know, I've changed my diet around. I mean, I am so strict with what I eat around my cycle because of endo that I, I know exactly what I have to eat. I've done so much research and I've been so, so thoughtful in how I'm going to manage my body, my pain, but it's taken me years of, of kindness with myself and saying, okay, well, what, what can I do to, for this body to service it? Because it's not defective. You know, I, 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 it's, a, it's a, such a harsh word, but I've said that so many times. And yes, I, I, it debilitates me. My condition debilitates me once a month. I, for like a day or two, I'm useless. Um, and you know what? So what? You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't mean I'm a useless person. I'm not useful in the, in the normal capacity of what I usually do. I can't hop, jump, skip, you know, go party, go dance and go on a date do these certain things or even go to work, right? Because now um, a part of part of my condition because endo is so beautiful and wonderful is that I developed asthma. Oh my goodness. I was never a smoker anyway. Yeah. But, you know, socially here and there, but like I was never a smoker. So that doesn't bother me. But because it's rest- it, 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 it's an immune condition, right? So endometriosis is, is uh, we're still defining it and we're trying to, we're all of us, advocates are pushing for it to be a disability because it disables you right some of us have stage four and there's no no matter what you do you can't get you can't get out of bed and because I'm positive I think about I'm grateful right like I'm grateful that I can speak to you today and I'm relatively pain-free I still live with pain you know and and the thing is because I have a smile on my face and because I like to cheer other people on a lot of people don't know like there are times that my pain is so terrible that I can barely do anything and nobody would know because I, you know, I'm proud. And I, and I also feel like that's my, that's my business. So I try my best with when, within what I can um, to do, to do good onto others. Right. Um, And try to, and try to, and try to help others out who might be going through 
an, um, an invisible illness, right? Because when people see me, they're like, oh, but you look fine. Like, dude, like you, you're, you're out dancing and stuff. Like, yeah, yeah. For the most part, I can go dancing. I can do a million different things, thankfully, because of the surgery. But there's so many people out there who can't afford that, who don't have health care. Women's reproductive issues of this magnitude are not covered by any insurance. So I had to pay out of pocket. Oh, goodness. And yeah, I, that must. And that's that's just stressful as it is. Very you expensive. Know? It's yeah. very expensive. But, you know, I will say the doctor, uh, Dr. Tamir Sechkin, who saved my life twice. I say this because he is amazing, an amazing man, an amazing, amazing individual in this world all I had to do which is still expensive but I had just had to pay the hospital for the fees and the second um the second time I came in he was like oh man you again but he said it like so tragically like I thought we you know I didn't think I was gonna see you again because you don't want to go back and see this doctor again like shit like I'm sick again four years later and am I gonna be sick every four years is this what's gonna happen am I gonna be in debt every couple every four years you know um it's a hard thing because it, it affects you on so many different levels. And also, you know, going into relationships. That's the first thing I say. I said, listen, I have endometriosis. I'm fine now, but there will be times that might be challenging. And if you're going to, if you're going to be in this with me, I just need you to know I'm a positive person and I'm a fucking fighter, but you're going to see me not be myself sometimes because there are times I'm going to be suffering and I'm going to be in pain and it's hard. So I put that out yeah. there. And it's, yeah, of course. And I feel like you need to do that as well. And it's, and what's crazy is I went to go try to, I was researching like factual evidence and regards like endometriosis and women with miscarriages and the, the rates are just astounding. Like 11% of American women have endometriosis, which literally means it's like six and a half million women yep. in America yes. have that. And yes. what's, and what's even more crazy is that in the in like 1970s like endometriosis was still around but the thing is is that it you couldn't even diagnose it unless you had major surgery and because the surgery back then which I think is the same thing now it's ridiculously expensive so it was always last resort for women who had severe symptoms but the thing is is that they didn't even do any operations or major surgery to women unless they were either in their 30s or their 40s so that was the I guess doctors back then they were kind of saying oh well we're just gonna assume that women in their 30s and their 40s are the only age group that endometriosis has but it's bullcrap because like girls have been having symptoms and it could start like as early as 14 15 yes absolutely absolutely let's be real nobody's taken women seriously since the beginning of time there's always been some kind of issue right like like if we're gonna speak candidly we have always been considered hysterical we're emotional we don't think straight we think with our hearts not with our head and so we are not our our pain and our anguish our grief um you know, our coping mechanisms, none of that is taken seriously because our pain is not taken seriously. We Absolutely. Are not seriously. It's even with women. Yeah, we're not taken seriously. And even women with miscarriages, like they, it's literally a high percentage of women who have experienced a miscarriage literally have PTSD for, for, for the maximum of like three months statistically, yes. which yes. what's probably 
to me personally, it's probably longer than three months because, yeah, but it's when people talk about these issues and especially um, like illnesses. And I, when I say illness, I don't even necessarily mean like physical illness, but I think our mental health depression is a medical illness. When we have these invisible unknown illnesses just lurking inside and then we ask for help and the people that we think supposed to help us when they have no idea what they're doing absolutely, or when we're not being listened to it kind of it almost feels like what the hell can you do it's almost like you're you're trying everything everything that they're telling you but if nothing comes out of it then you in your head you're just like god damn it then what the what the fuck is the point you know exactly it's like screaming into the void yeah absolutely and, and i'm not I'm not, I can be shy sometimes, um, but for the most part, I'm a very vociferous, loud, um, outspoken person. So I can, I'm nice, but like, no, like if something's wrong, I'm going to say it. And you get to a point where you're just like, I'm so upset. I'm angered and I'm upset that it took so long. You know, there were doctors that told me that I was, that I was inventing it, that I needed to go to a psychiatrist. And I went to a psychiatrist and they're like, you're fine. This ha- this is corporal. This is a physical ailment that's that's affecting you. And Which I is think- hilarious to think about it that your physicians are looking at you like you're fine and it wasn't until you went to your psychiatrist that they yes. looked at you like um no, you yes. have something physically wrong. You need to talk to somebody. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. And they're like you need to go on antidepressants. I'm like, "Listen, I'm not depressed, but you're depressing me." because you're not believing me and they were like well you know you have to stay positive and I was like you know I got to a point right where in my head I was like bitch I am positive do you even fucking know what I'm going through but you know you don't say that right that's that's the hood in me right that's the New York (laughs) where I'm like listen bitch don't even fucking talk to me about pain but of course that's not something I'm ever gonna say because that's not like how I talk in the real world that's the inner Lucy right where it's like that's hood Lucy right yeah you look at the doctors and you're like hello like are you kidding me are you are you actually listening and I I was diagnosed with so many different things um and I you know I so I just found my own path like I developed my own way of doing things and I still do that like there are things that I have to practice now years later that I know I have to do for my wellness and no matter what surgery or not there are things that I can't do or things that I can do I have to be careful um and, and the thing is, everybody's journey is different, right? Especially with invisible illness. But chronic illness is one of those things where it's like, yeah, it can get better. Yeah, it can get worse. Maybe it'll stay the same. But at the end of the day, it's chronic. You never know when shit's going to hit the fan. And you're kind of nervous about when it might hit. But I've reached a point in my life where I'm like, well, listen, if it's going to happen, I can't avoid it. I'm just going to keep living my life as if nothing's going to happen. And if something happens, you roll with it. I'm at an age where I definitely don't want to have kids um, and I'm contemplating doing something permanent about it. But, you know, people discourage you because they're like, well, what if you want to have kids with this hypothetical person that doesn't exist? Like, they're like, well, what if you find the right man? And I'm like, well, listen, I haven't thus far. Let me tell you, it's not going to happen. But second of all, (laughs) if the right man came along, the right person came along, um, they would understand that I don't want to have kids and they would be right for me because they wouldn't want that either. Absolutely. 100% agree. Yeah. Yeah. So like all those different things, I mean, you have to be 35 before you even contemplate that medically. 
I'm 37. I talked about it with my doctor. They're still discouraging me a little bit because they say, you know, it's not a cure. And I know it's not a cure um, because I could still get it even with that with a hysterectomy. But I definitely don't want to be going through this every month. And so these are like things I'm questioning in the middle of everything else that's going on with my life. Right. Like, do I really want to go through early menopause? Do I really want to go through the hell that 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 is? Um, at an early age, because then you can develop osteoporosis sooner, um, endometrial cancer, ovarian cancer, breast cancer, because you're accelerating your aging process. Um, and I don't want to do that because in my head, I'm still 18, you know, I'm still, I'm still young. Yeah. I'm ready to party. Well, it's funny. It's funny because a lot of people, especially me too, whenever we're always hanging out, they're always looking at you and they always think that you are so young. Even your appearance wise, they're just like, oh, you're like super young. But it's so crazy because I feel like your soul has aged rapidly. Yes. Yes. My body is is old as fuck sometimes. But my head (laughs) is like, bitch you better go party like it's like it's 1999 because I remember going uh-huh. to party when it was 1999 <laughs> <laughs> but yeah no yeah so what um what I actually really wanted to get into as well was your book the taste of broken because uh it, it firstly for anybody who hasn't read it I think you should go read it because it's really really beautiful it's beautifully written and it's very relatable too, with a lot of the things that we're talking about in regards to not just physical, but mentally the things that we, that we're constantly going through. So what I wanted to know is because this is actually, this, this really talks about, you know, the experiences and the things that you've tried to go through internally. And at what point did you think to yourself, okay, I need to write about this. I need to share this because like you said, and like we've been talking about, a lot of people won't deal with this silently. Yes. So they won't really try to express who they are or express their inner turmoils, especially because we live in a generation where, you know, if you share too much, you kind of feel vulnerable in a way to everybody around you. But you kind of went that route of explaining everything that was happening to you in this book so at what point did you decide okay I need to use my art to move forward as like a road to recovery for this um so actually I started writing that book 11 years ago 11 12 uh let's see hold on I was yeah about 11 years ago so I got sick I got very very sick right um my relationship with that person, my first boyfriend ended after 12 years. We were on and off, but essentially 12 years together. Um, and that ended and there was a huge heartbreak, but I knew that it wasn't meant to be. We were very different people. Um, and I couldn't write about the breakup, right? As a poet and as a writer, my outlet has always been writing and creating and I couldn't. Um, and then sometime later, once I was better, um, and I hadn't got, received my diagnosis and I was on um, the birth control pill, which regulated at the time my symptoms, I felt ready. Some time had passed to experience a new relationship. And so when I was in that process of rediscovering relationships under a new set of, uh, with a new condition, a new set of rules, right? Um, I thought I was ready to write about it, right? But it, it took me about a year after my diagnosis for me to write about that first year and it was incredibly painful it was truly 
it was like slitting my wrist and just putting everything out there. Um, and I never, ever, ever thought it was going to get published. But I also wrote it with the intention of saying, of expressing rather, that that fear, that isolation that one feels at the hands of an, an invisible illness that no one knows how to cure, how to, how to name, what to name it and what, and, and how to cure it. And so that first year was very dark for me in that way, but I pers- persevered and I wrote. So about a year after I was diagnosed, I started writing the book and I was deeply in love at the time with the new partner that I had. And so <clears throat> that helped me, right? Because I was able to write from a place of love also. And having gone through that first year of fear certainly gave me perspective on what it's like to feel happy and functional with endometriosis and having it under control, right? That, that there's life after a diagnosis, that people can love you, that you can be lovable, that, that people will be there for you. Um, because that was my fear, right? It was my fear, like, if I tell somebody that I have this, you know, what are they going to say? Now I'm just like, listen, this is who I am. Like, I put it out there. It's in my profile. That's what my art is about. Like, if you don't know it, then you're not paying attention, right? Like, if you don't know this about me at this point, because I'm so actively in, engaged in act, uh, activism and reproductive health. And if you don't, if you're not paying attention to the, to the stuff that I put on my IG stories or in my Instagram or in p- plain conversations and you're not paying attention, then you know what? You're not even worth me even trying to like entertain me, right? Because <laughs> yeah, no, that's so true on so right? many levels. Like come, on, like, come on, if you're not, if you don't know that about me and, and I mean, ideally you would be great if you did research, but you know, whatever. But if you don't know that about me, then like, okay, like, uh, that's not happening between you and I, but, um, but anyway, so, but at the time it was really frightening for me. I was like, well, how do I say this? And, you know, how do I bring this up that it might be difficult to be with somebody who has, you know, and it was hard, but the, my partner at the time was really, I mean, he was wonderful. We were friends before that and he was incredible and it was wonderful journey, um, learning about the limitations and, and, and being creative about things. So I wrote that book while I was with him. And so that slant came from a place of positivity and feeling as though, you know, you could live a functional life, right? Because when I was, when I was alone going through it, it was hard to stay positive. I fought through it, but there were really dark moments where I thought I'm just going to be alone for the rest of my life. And I didn't mean like even romantically, right? Because I've never focused on being somebody, I've never been somebody who focuses my life around romance, right? Yeah. I have a very full life and I don't need romance in my life or a partner. But I meant like as as a person, like, wow, this is such an isolating thing, an isolating condition. How how is life going to be? This is this feels really rough. Um, So I wrote the book. I finished the book within a year. And actually, it didn't even take me a year, I don't think. But it was hard for me to write. And everybody was pushing me to write, write about your experiences, write about this. And I was like, it will come when it comes. I can't pressure it. I'm not ready to talk about something that's so profoundly moving to me that's changed my entire life. I mean, endometriosis changed everything about me. My life went in a totally different direction, a totally different course. Um, if I hadn't, if I hadn't been diagnosed with endometriosis, I would have gone to grad school much sooner. Um, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm starting in August now. Finally, I'm an MFA candidate, but it took me 13 years after I graduated because I was diagnosed shortly after graduating from, you know, um, my bachelor's. So it changed a lot of the things I wanted to travel the world. There were so many things I wanted to do and endometriosis 
changed that. Um, and I'm proud of that because it showed how resilient I am, but it changed things. So I write about that in the book and I write it through poetry. And um, I, I finished the book within about a year and I had it there. I had it there and it was sitting there and everybody was like, listen, you need to do something with this. You need to do something. Nobody's talking about endometriosis. And we're talking about 10, 11 years ago, right? Yeah. Now people talking about it more, but even still, it's just coming to surface. And even then, like, it's still very elusive to most people and very mysterious, right? Um, and it's just there for years. And I was like, I, I don't have the courage to do anything with it. Um, and <clears throat> every person that I'd either dated or been with thereafter knew about this book but I didn't even let them in in reading it, right? And I was like, oh, I don't know, I don't know. And it wasn't, honestly, it wasn't until last year, or actually, I'm sorry, it was uh, two years ago um, that my my brother, who was an artist in his own right, uh, developed his own thesis for his, um, he was graduating, and his thesis was a, a final presentation of a piece that he had to create and produce and curate. And so he chose my book as his as his uh, thesis and he interpreted my book and actually created a visual and artistic space in an experimental um, format and took my poetry and set it to words and and it was very it was it was very tactical but it was also very um it hit all the senses it wasn't which is crazy because it in a way it's almost like he kind of put the fire under you like uh, if you won't do it then I will type of thing he's you know what he's my younger brother but he also is much more um he's much more out there than I am like I'm very shy about putting my work out there I'm very he's always been a champion um and for those that don't know who my brother is his name is Fe Torres he's been everywhere you've probably seen him He's just fucking amazing. And I'm, I, I'm his number one fan. Um, but so he, yeah, he's the one who, who puts the fire under my ass a lot of times. And he's my cheerleader. And he's like, why are you so sedentary with things? You need to go out there and do this. You're amazing. And I'm like, oh, I'm too shy. And, you know, oh, this is so personal. And it wasn't until he did that that I was like, you know what? This book is fucking ready. And actually, it had a pretty good reception for like a nobody because I'm a nobody from Queens you know like who's gonna buy my book but it was a it was a pdf format or rather it was um you know you could download it into your phone or or ipad or what have you um and actually had a pretty good reception for somebody from like no like I'm a nobody um and the show actually kept selling out it was a very underground show but people showed up in droves and uh, they had to do create multiple shows for it, and I that's amazing. That's so amazing how they had to do extra shows. That's awesome. It was amazing, and I couldn't. The day I showed up, it was a personal screening, so it was just um, the show was being. It was just the the actors, uh, the actresses. Um, my brother, who was obviously leading the show, directing it, um, and it was just going to be me, my my boyfriend at the time my best friend and her husband. It was just the four of us. And for some reason, like 40, 50 people showed up and they're like, we're here for the show. And my brother's like, this is a closed event, but he's like, I'm not going to turn anybody away from this experience. So it was supposed to be very personal. And then it showed, it, they had to break it down because the way it was set up was only about 15 people at a time could do it because it was a very small space. It was experimental. So all those people waited for a couple of hours to do the run. 
Oh, and that's then they just met me afterwards. so cool. Yeah, it was amazing. It was, you know, I don't like people. I'm very shy when it comes to my work. So I didn't want anybody like to come up to me. But there were a lot of people coming up to me. And, and this is where it hit home. Because for me, the reason I wrote that book was, I don't want somebody else to go through this alone. Because I went through it by myself. And if I could write this for that one person who's crying in their room thinking that they're defective that they're useless that nobody's gonna love them or that they're they're <clears throat> they're not good enough if I could just reach that one person and make them feel comforted then it would that would pay off it would be worth it and and when I put that book out and the show came, went live so many women came up after come came up to me and and men too who had been with women who experienced some of these issues were either diagnosed or undiagnosed, but they were thinking, oh my gosh, maybe they haven't, so let's check this out. They came up after, you know, uh, after the show. And of course I was a hot mess crying because I'm a very, I'm a crier. Um, and and um, I was so overcome with emotion. I didn't know what to do with myself because I don't like that sense of attention, but more than anything, the fact that the attention that was garnered was from my work and it was reaching somebody and it made them more aware of their bodies and they were thinking wow you know this seems a lot like what I went through it's empowered me as a writer as an artist as a feminist as an activist to keep going and seeing it it's you know it's something that's never going to be cured there's no cure for it and I know every couple of years I might need a tune-up and I'm tired, you know, like I feel tired, but I'm also so joyful in saying that I, I can talk about it and that my activism and my strength and keep and to keep going forward comes from the fact that I know I'm not alone and there's so many women who can't speak or there's so many people who menstruate, right? Because it's not just a woman's issue. It's a menstruator's issue. Um, so many people can't speak because they don't have health insurance or they don't know what's going on. Um, or they don't have the ability to talk about it, or they're ashamed, or it's taboo. And the fact that I can do something about it in my own little world, because I'm a nobody in the scale of things, but still fight for it, it's important to me. And in the two years since I've had my surgery, I recovered, I've been through some crazy stuff since. Um, You know, it's been a rough couple of years, my body has gone through a lot these last couple of years. And it feels tired sometimes. But my brain isn't right. Like I'm exhausted, but at the same time, I'm not because I, I value life so much because I've had it. I've had life taken from me so many different ways and so many different variations. And so it's, it's changed my perspective on life and I'm very grateful for what I have. So I can't ever be ungrateful for the times that I'm healthy and, and not talk about it and not fight tooth and nail and get upset, you know? Um, and, you know, I, I always say, like, because I've become even more staunch in my feminism, people are like, man, you used to be so nice and so sweet. What happened? And I was like, listen, I'm still nice and sweet. I just can't take the BS anymore. I can't, I can't be quiet like I was before because I was shy or I wasn't assertive, right? Because I was always staunch like this. I just never, it just never manifested, right, in the way that it, it, it could have because I wasn't there in my journey yet. Yeah. But now that I'm here, I'm like, I'm here. This is what I look like. This is who I am. If you don't like me, that's cool. If you like me, that's cool too. But let's get this popping and let's do something about 
radicalizing these things? How do we beget change? Well, we have to change the way we perceive ourselves first. Because if we are doing the damage to ourselves, certainly we're not going to be able to change the world if we're not able to change ourselves. Yeah. Oh, Lucy, thank you so, so, so much for taking the time to do this. I really, really appreciate it. I know that you're actually on your way to California really soon. So it's like you're going to be doing so much amazing work. And I just cannot wait to see it. Um, where can people find you like on the internet world? Um, so you can find me Lucy-Torres.com. Um, and you can find my links to my Instagram there um, and my Facebook account. Um, but you can also just, you know, I, I feel like, at some point, if you just follow anything that has to do with endo, I will be there. Coping <laughs> my, my, like, my short little self, interjecting myself, and I have opinions about everything. So um, if you see anything about endo, I will certainly be somewhere in, the, in that mix. You'll see me. Um, but, but yes, thank you so much for, for having me, for, for letting me rant about these crazy issues that we're still having in 2019 about women not being listened to about our bodies still not being listened to um I thank you for that and thank you for creating a forum where I could speak candidly about it yeah absolutely just thank you so much for doing this I cannot wait for the work that you're going to be doing later on I seriously can't wait (laughs) thank you so much I feel honored to 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 have been on your show so thank you yeah no problem um thank you everybody who came in to tune in and listen um I hope you could be kind to yourself and be kind to others. And I hope you have a beautiful day.